Okowi will be sworn in in October. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Apple and Microsoft report solid earnings, but the stocks languish in after-hours trading. The two companies reported very different outcomes in China. iPhone sales up 48% for Apple, but disappointment for Microsoft. In other news, Jokowi is officially declared president in Indonesia. Shoemaker Yu Yun says that its work stoppage has ended and EU ministers stop short of new sanctions on Russia. I think the road of sanctions doesn't lead anywhere. It's a cul-de-sac. Uh, because uh, in order to see a solution of the Ukrainian crisis, and I think everybody agrees at this point that it can only be a political solution. That's Russia's ambassador to the European Union, Vladimir Chizov. He says that sanctions will hurt the EU more than Russia. And we have the short tease from Microsoft CFO Amy Hood. Significant momentum with our cloud services, progress in a number of our consumer businesses, and continued cost discipline. But again, disappointment in China. More on that in a minute. In our featured segments, we take a look at the strength in the earnings of tech companies with Alberto Mole at Sanford C. Bernstein. Paul Schulte of Get Close to the Server fame from this program will be back. Uh, he'll be talking about Alibaba and the cloud. And if we have time, we'll talk a little bit about uh, banking as well. And we'll be talking to David Green Morgan from Jones Lang LaSalle about commercial real estate in the Asia Pacific. And later, Robert Green from Hamilton Advisors will be along to take a look at Alibaba from a different angle. That is what the company's listing will mean for Chinese brands. Five minutes now after eight o'clock, we'll get you a read on Asian markets in just a moment. EU foreign ministers have agreed to expand sanctions against Russia, but they failed to announce anything formal today. More now from Bloomberg's Ryan Chilcote. The EU just completed their discussions and decided that they will draw up some proposals for imposing sanctions on Russia uh, by Thursday. They discussed a lot of things, including restricting Russian access to capital markets here in the European Union. You'll remember that they restricted the, the access to uh, financial markets of four, a bit more than four Russian companies last week. The United States did. Uh, and now we might see the same thing out of the European Union at this point. However, it is just a proposal. They also discussed a weapons ban, uh, a ban on selling weapons to Russia. Again, Ryan Chilcote reporting there was said to be some sharp differences in how biting the sanctions should be. On Wall Street, stocks did post uh, strong gains. The S&P 500 up nine points at 1983. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gaining 61 points to 17,113. Existing home sales were up 2.6%. That was the highest pace since October of 2013. Michelle Meyer of Bank of America says momentum in the housing market is gaining. 
It's the third month of gains, so that I think is somewhat encouraging. As you said, you can't get too excited about one given report, but we have now seen some gradual momentum build in the housing market. Um, and it comes after what was a string of really weak data starting last summer. Existing home sales had been trending down. It started, we think, in part due to the rise in interest rates. Um, the harsh winter weather didn't help. So it does appear like the data's gotten a little bit better. We're reversing some of that downturn. We're not off to the races. There's still a lot of challenges for the housing market, but I am somewhat encouraged by the recent data. Ms. Meyer says the Federal Reserve is watching housing very closely. The Fed is extremely focused on what's happening in the housing market right now. We heard that from Janet Yellen in her testimony. And and it and it's a point of the economy that um, was obviously hit extraordinarily hard from this crisis. It's interest rate sensitive part of the economy, so it's one that the Fed feels like perhaps they have a greater ability to influence. And the fact that the data had been weakening since the middle of last year, I think, was certainly discouraging. Residential investment sliced from GDP growth in both Q4 of last year and Q1 of this year, and it looks like maybe it'll be a slight positive in the second quarter. So we're not getting that jolt from housing that perhaps they were hoping for. Michelle Meyer, Bank of America. Apple said quarterly profit rose 12 percent to seven and three quarter billion dollars. The company reported a big jump in iPhone and Mac sales, which countered a drop in iPad sales. Apple sold 35.2 million iPhones, up 13 percent from the same period last year. Overall revenue was six percent higher. Again, iPhone sales in China rose 48 percent. The shares, though, were flat in after hours. Many investors expecting uh, stronger earnings in a sense, or at least um, buying the shares ahead of what might be a blockbuster report. And instead, it was just a little better than expected. Meantime, Microsoft had profit that fell short of estimates in the fourth quarter, but the revenue was higher. The company was weighed down by the Nokia acquisition. Net income was 55 cents a share. Analysts were predicting 60. However, if you take Nokia out and exclude it, then the profit at Microsoft would have been 66 cents a share, and that would have beat the uh, average prediction of 64. The chief financial officer, Amy Hood, said North America and Europe were solid, but China lagged. Geographically, performance was strong across most markets, particularly in North America and in Europe. We did, however, see challenging conditions in China, where, like many other multinationals, we're experiencing a weak business environment which we do not expect to change in the near term. Hmm. Both Apple and Microsoft are trading at 16 times earnings. Okay, just one other note before we bring in our guests. Bond price is flat overnight. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note holding steady at a little under 2.5% at 247. Our first guest is Paul Schulte, Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Schulte Research International. Paul, good morning. Hi, good morning. Get close to the server. Indeed, yes. So that's not really a question, is it? <laughs> Just no. remind the audience that last time you were on uh, that uh, you said you advised people, get close to the server. These companies like Alibaba and Amazon and Tencent and a few others are really um, exporting deflation in a sense, and they are changing the way business gets done. Yeah, uh, that's right. Just so expound if, on that a little bit. Yeah, again. if you look at... Uh uh, you, you mentioned the cloud businesses of uh, your uh, in your previous news report. These cloud businesses didn't exist, you, you know, four or five years ago, and now they're 
almost a $10 billion business. They didn't even exist for um, Alibaba three years ago, and now that's a, more than $100 million in revenue. These companies are able to gather hundreds of billions of uh, bits of information from every source imaginable, and they're able to guess all of our price points, our preferences, our timing, our location, um, our um, books, uh, what we like, what we don't like, where we buy it, how much we buy it for. And they're capable of basically pushing out every marginal um, producer of just about everything there is in the world. And in that sense, they are very, very deflationary. So, so do you like tech generally because it's enabling these these um, consumers uh, across the world, or do you specifically like those that um, you know have really expanded their server business to be able to do this? Well, I think there's two things. There's a server business like uh, Amazon's cloud, Google, Microsoft, and obviously Alibaba, which is dominating uh, not only the cloud businesses but also the telephone business for cellular businesses, for financial services in particular in China. And so in that sense, they are – I think right now they're uncatchable. It's very difficult to catch them given how far ahead they are. On the other hand, you have a lot of other companies coming up. The main – the biggest holdings of hedge funds globally are some of the most interesting cutting-edge companies in the world. And these companies are engaging in businesses which are biopharmaceuticals, genomics, uh, chip implants, um, uh, drones – uh, other uh, affiliated cloud technology companies. And so these companies are doing uh, 3D uh, printing. These, are, these companies are all doing things that are brand new technologies, which in and of themselves are deflationary for their own businesses because they basically are um, capital re- replacing labor. Net-net, is this a good thing, or does deflation end up uh, causing so much of a disruption to business the world over and also hurting job uh, job creation uh, that um, we're not quite sure where it takes us? I think that is exactly the source of a lot of the political discontent in the world right now, is that the middle class is being hollowed out, and this is one of the main reasons for this uh, widening gap between the rich and the poor, because you have a greater degree of profitability concentrated in the hands of a very few number of people in an increasingly fewer number of cities like, you know, uh, London, Silicon Valley, a couple of cities in Germany, Scandinavia, even Japan is doing some astonishing work in, in these technologies. And the countries that are not participating in this are going to be left behind. So looking at um, a po- portfolio, um, would you say that uh, banking uh, businesses are sort of dying on the vine while these some of these uh, server-based businesses, cloud-focused uh, businesses, are in ascent? I think that's exactly right. That's uh, We just put out a major report on that. It's a combination of, of, of four things. M-banking comes along, like Alibaba comes along and is able to do things in the financial services areas and other companies as well in America. But, but also you're dealing with um, you know severe capital problems that still haunt the banks. Uh, you're dealing with a, a, a profound issue of criminality in uh, financial services, which is continues to widen. And you're also dealing with uh, derivative issues that are legacy issues. And so these four things together are torpedoing financial institutions and allowing a very wide door to open for uh, inventive technology companies to come in. Do you think banks need to cut costs a lot and uh, add a lot of technology if they're going to keep up? 
Uh, ab- yes, sir. Absolutely. And so, for instance, Barclays has been forced to cut its investment bank in half last month, uh, as one example. Uh, another example I'd give you is Goldman Sachs is probably one of the few institutions that's really racing ahead. One out of four Goldman Sachs employees is in technology. Most of the other universal global banks, European, UK, Swiss, are just not catching up, and they risk a long-term decline if they don't do something very quickly. So do you think banks are actually entering a sunset phase? Do they have the DNA to change? This is one of the major themes of that book by Christensen, which is uh, the innovator's dilemma. <clears throat> you know, Are they in sunset industries, and do they have the DNA to reverse this? Christensen says no. Okay, if we could look a little bit more specifically at Alibaba, um, they are talking about, um, or at least the rumors are, that uh, the pricing will be a little bit lower than what we might have thought before, and it looks like a little bit of a delay in the IPO. Uh, Do you think that, um, well, having to wait, of course, to see what the specifics are, are you keen on getting into the Alibaba IPO? I think Alibaba it has become one of the most interesting companies in the world because it is, you know, it is it is PayPal, uh, it is Amazon, you know, it is eBay. Microsoft, it is eBay, it is, you know, on and on. It, it, it is, you know, it controls, you know, um, the lion's share of cell phone and financial services. It controls um, all of the services, you know, for instance, like in eBay, and it uh, it now has the dominant um, cloud uh, activity in China. And so a lot of this together is an unbeatable force, um, not only locally, but if you compare it in terms of its profitability, uh, the profitability of Alibaba is double any other major company in the world uh, of its kind. And so just looking again at that investment profile, um, what, how would you structure it now between equity and bonds and within equity uh, towards tech versus uh, old economy stocks? Um, okay, so uh, for, the, for the new economy, Alibaba will definitely be in a Asian portfolio is a very definite replacement stock for financial institutions absolutely positively that is that is without a doubt in my mind for instance for starters secondly i think the reason for the delay is there's only been two um uh releases uh of information from uh, alibaba and it's still in discussion with the sec a lot of these ipos are six seven eight nine ten you know back and forths between the sec and the company so this is no surprise And Alibaba warned us a long time ago that there is a strong possibility of a September IPO uh, if the uh, August 8th date did not work out. Okay, I just want to remind our listenership that we have Robert Greaves coming up later, and uh, we're going to talk with uh, Robert about uh, branding in China and the effect of the uh, Alibaba IPO. I'll save that to a little bit later to make it special in the second half hour of the program. Uh, But I'd like to uh, welcome in now Alberto Moll, Senior Research Analyst at Sanford C. Bernstein, to talk a little bit about tech. Technology. And uh, Paul, stay with us. Uh, perhaps you'd like to weigh in as well. Uh, we've had a slew of earnings here of the last uh, week or so, um, Alberto. And first, good morning. Thank good you morning. For, thank you for coming in. Uh, I know that uh, you don't specifically cover um, some of the big um, uh, American companies, uh, but you do cover a lot of the suppliers out here. So you've got you know, a good feel for how things are moving. Um, we had um, 
pretty strong earnings from Apple, but not blowout. Uh, Microsoft missing a little on the profit side, but strong on revenue. Uh, Google missed analyst expectations on income, but basically almost everybody who looked at the Google report was pretty Im- impressed with it. Just overall, looking at the tech earnings so far, what sort of report card would you uh, would you have? Well, so far, I think it's it's uh, looking better than 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 people expected to some degree. Uh, I do think that. Uh, 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 Microsoft uh, being soft and, and uh, Apple being strong are actually fairly very consistent with what we're seeing out here in supply chain in terms of hardware purchases. People are shifting towards lower cost uh, devices and therefore Microsoft has less to offer while Apple remains very strong and, and for now Apple seems to be leading the, uh, the level of interest out here in Asia, uh, in particular for the supply chain. Will Apple have a lot of trouble competing with Xiaomi and its cheaper priced phones? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, Xiaomi is a is a local Chinese brand for now. It's moving out to to the rest of the world. I've been reading reports about it them going to Indonesia, India, and Brazil, uh, and running the trouble, which I'm not surprised because if you think about it, uh, their model is one of uh, word of mouth, low uh, advertising spend, um, uh, online distribution. And to do that outside of China, you need to set that up outside of China physically. You can't just assume you can sell it to the web like you used to. So all that all that setup needs to be done. And Apple, of course, is a global brand, and, and though it has a much higher price point, uh, it, ha- it has a, a, a large group of fans that will buy that over anything else. Now, Apple's been pretty slow embracing the um, larger form factor for the phone, uh, you know, the bigger screen. Uh, it looks like that's coming sometime in September. Uh, will that cut into Samsung's business a lot? Uh, yes, I think so. If you talk to investors and to consumers in general, there's a big sentiment that uh, when the iPhone 5 was rolled out, people did not replace it into an iPhone 5 or maybe bought one, but we're not re- we're reluctant because they wanted a bigger iPhone. So now that the bigger iPhone does come out, say about four seven or five five and a half inch, that's going to make people excited and replace their current iPhone for a new iPhone or the Samsung for a new iPhone. So basically, mm-hmm. Samsung we believe Samsung rode the wave of larger displays being interesting to people, and Apple not providing that. Yeah. And what about the slightly weaker iPad sales for um, for Apple? Does that what what impact does that have on some of the suppliers out here and who would be affected? That, that's also consistent with with uh, the the trend in tablets, which has been towards smaller, lower cost tablets. And that, of course, uh, uh, Apple selling less tablets means that the, the biggest uh, impact is uh, Honhai and Pegatron, which are the makers of, of the tablets. Uh, the smaller tablet makers are still you know, moving along. Tablet shipment rates have slowed down. I think that tablets in general are, are turned out to be a, a very interesting and viable device, but they cannot really replace PCs or smartphones in the end, so people are using them as a third device, and therefore people are not willing to spend too much money for them, it seems. Of the companies that you follow, um, which are the strongest buy ratings you've got? I've got uh, buy ratings on Lenovo, which is a PC maker, and I got buy ratings on Asus, which is uh, also a PC maker. I also have a buy rating on Corning, which makes display glass uh, for the displays. You know, that's 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 sort of the, the arms dealer of the business. Are you as overall bullish on technology as Paul Schulte appears to be? Uh, I, I'm a hardware guy, and hardware is always deflationary, which means that wherever you get into, you're gonna in the end you're gonna end up uh, you know eating into your margins. And the drive for volume drives margins down, and so it's a game of trying to get volume higher before your margins collapse. So it's running faster than stay in place. So I, I, I love technology as investments are very tough. And, and how important is mobile now uh, in the overall tech sphere? 
It's huge. I mean, as we know, the, the, the shift to first 2G, then 3G, then 4G mobility is, is where the action has been the last few years. Tablets are mobile. Smartphones are mobile. PCs, it's all no- notebooks, right? Desktops are still used, but they're more like dump trucks or things you use in the background. Uh, I think mobile is where action is going, and it's just going to get more and more mobile as, as we move along. So. Is the world becoming um, one marketplace for a lot of these uh, companies? I mean, obviously for Apple and Samsung it is, but a company like Netflix, for instance, uh, has been more or less domestic. It has expanded outside uh, the U.S. Now it says it's going to make a big push. Uh, Is it one world for all these um, um, companies? Well, there's two sides to it. One, if you're a hardware manufacturer like a Lenovo or an Asus, you, you do go global. So you are still a global brand. And there is concentration. I mean, this stuff gets harder and harder to make as you go along. So you actually do see concentration of the brands and the suppliers. The companies like Netflix, they need infrastructure. So if the infrastructure is there in other countries, they'll, they'll, they'll do it. If not, they'll stay where they are. And how, how much of a problem is licensing? Is that what kind of holds them back? That, that's also an issue. It is, it is of course, licensing, the content licensing, the, all the deals that we struck across the countries. There's all kinds of treaties and agreements that, that prevent or permit certain content to be distributed illegally around the world, and that, that does make a difference. I'd just like to do a little tease for Robert Greaves' section coming up in the second half and just say good morning to Robert since he's sitting there. Um, Robert, um, you know, Alberto mentioned Lenovo, and we started talking about um, whether or not um, – you know, manufacturers can take their brands outside the country. That's a very big question with China. So just tease out um, your segment coming up after 8.30. Uh, are Chinese um, companies about ready to take their brands globally? Uh, it depends on which section, uh, which segment you're in, Brian. And Lenovo is actually already there as a global brand in many respects. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, you will find that tech is probably the best bet for Chinese companies to go global. When you say tech, uh, you mean both hardware and software? Well, I'm I'm really talking about the online companies. I'm really talking about Alibaba and uh, other Chinese Internet companies. Okay, so we'll be talking again with Robert Greaves uh, probably around um, 8.40 or so. The time now is 25 minutes after 8 o'clock, and we'll get you an update on markets uh, in in the region now. Uh, It's a pretty good day. It looks like almost all the markets will be higher, or at least are higher in early trading this morning. In Australia, you've got gains of about a third of a percent. Seoul's higher as well. And uh, looking at uh, Japan stocks, uh, gains there of about one-third of a percent uh, also. Uh, The pound is trading at 1,300. Hong Kong dollars 22 cents, so still quite strong. The dollar 101.51 Japanese yen, very little change there. And the euro is trading at 1.346 US dollars. So the euro finally moving a bit lower. It had been stick around, stuck around 136, moved down to 135 in the last day or two, and now under a dollar 35 at 1.3468. Oil 107.33, and gold prices $1,308.30 an ounce. <laughs> Things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Yeah, just poking fun at money there in this program, Money for Nothing, looking at business and finance. Our guests are Paul Schulte, the CEO of his own firm, and Alberto Mole, senior research analyst at Sanford C. Bernstein. Robert Greaves coming up in the second part of the program. We'll also be speaking with David Green Morgan later about commercial property in the Asia Pacific. Paul, back to you. Um, <clears throat> 
I used to really think of you as as uh, currency and um, kind of a banking expert, but you've had quite a change in your approach to um, markets here. Yeah, I've been reflecting on that in the last few months. I was doing banks for many, many years, but I think what's happening is that the the market capitalization of some of the largest banks in the world is now averaging, you know, sixty, seventy billion dollars, and these largest banks in the world have market caps that are now sort of coinciding with, you know, Southeast Asian banks and Australian banks. And what we're seeing is a global universal banking structure that I used to work for. I used to work for Credit Suisse. You know, I used to work for ING. And these, you know, global institutions are, you know, many people talk about the potentiality for extinction for some of these institutions because of issues of uh, severe criminality, uh, severe capital issues, uh, you know, still problematic derivative issues from seven years ago. And, of course, the inability of these banks to, you know, to, to, to convert to this whole M banking. People always use the example of Kodak. Kodak invented yeah. digital cameras, right? Kodak had 140,000 employees. Instagram has 17 employees, Right. Yeah. And so, how do these institutions? So the banks have missed it. You're saying that they've just been too slow to embrace the new age. They're too. They've got too many employees. Their costs are too high. They've run into a lot of past mistakes that have led to very strong regulation. They have to actually amp up uh, costs in a sense to meet the regula- regulatory regime. Yes, sir. And it's just a really bad combination of factors. And not only that, they're dragging around in a big sack about eight hundred billion dollars of assets that need to be funded every day. You know, these assets have to get funded 24-7. And when you say that they have to be funded, what do you mean? It means that, that they have to keep on going around and, and finding people to buy these bonds that are, you know, that are four, five, six percent bonds uh, around the world with pension funds, insurance funds, you know, who are increasingly sick and tired of all the criminality where their cost of capital is one, uh, sorry, their returns on capital are one percent. So the cost of capital is six, seven, eight percent. The returns on capital are one percent. Not a good business. Yeah. Okay. So just as we approach the news here at the bottom of the hour, let me go around uh, and just with the two of you uh, get your favorite picks. Uh, I'll go to Alberto first. Uh, um, you know, you already mentioned that you've got a strong buy on Lenovo. Uh, overall, what would be your best um, theme at the moment? I would say Lenovo is probably the best one at this point. The, the argument there is that the, the PC business is not looking as bad as people thought. Lenovo is a very large and well-run company. It is the world's biggest PC maker, and they seem to be doing a pretty good job at, uh, at, uh, at the capturing market share and growing in a stagnant market. They are now looking into acquiring Motorola Mobile and the IBM server division, so that should add to that. I think it's, uh, it's uh, for, for, actually for, for a global company, it's a pretty good company. For a Chinese company, it's outstanding. And uh, Paul, what is uh, what's your best idea? The, Let's set Alibaba aside for the moment yes. because you've already waxed poetic about that. The what banks, the, the retail banks in the world that are grabbing on to this technology in the most aggressive ways and the most creative and the most productive ways are uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, number one. Number two, Santander. Santander is grabbing onto this aggressively. Um, Bank of Nova Scotia. And the last one is BCA in Indonesia is also grabbing on to a lot of this very aggressively. Follow the retail banks that are grabbing on to uh, this mobile phone technology and, 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 and telling the customer, don't come to our bank branches. Please do business with us on the phone. 
or over the internet or better yet even over the phone it's even easier okay those are the ones that are going to win Okay, thanks very much, Paul. Um, Paul, get close to the server. Schulte is CEO and chairman of his own firm. Thanks very much. Uh, sorry to poke fun, but it's just a great line, and <laughs> it says a lot. Alberto Mohl, senior research analyst at Sanford C. Bernstein. Many thanks. Robert Greaves will stay with us, and David Green Morgan from Jones Lang LaSalle coming up shortly. Weather today, sunny period. Some showers expected. Very hot, too. Maximum temperature, 33. The outlook, sunshine expected over the next few days. Some showers as well. Radio 3. 8.30, the news with Samantha Butler. All American airlines and a number of their European counterparts have suspended flights to Israel over safety concerns linked to rocket fire from Gaza. The United States Federal Aviation Administration has announced a one-day suspension of all U.S. flights to Tel Aviv. It said a rocket from Gaza had landed just over one kilometer from Ben Gurion International Airport. Several European airlines have followed suit. The U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has said the framework for any ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and Palestinians in Gaza must be based on an Egyptian plan, which Hamas has so far rejected. Speaking in Cairo, Mr. Kerry said Hamas had a fundamental choice to make that would have a profound impact on the people of Gaza. Hamas has a fundamental choice to make, and it is a choice that will have a profound impact for the people of Gaza. And the Egyptians have provided a framework and a forum for them to be able to come to the table to have a serious discussion together with other factions of the Palestinians. A Dutch forensics expert in Ukraine has said fewer bodies than expected had been delivered from the crash site of the Malaysia Airlines flight. Jan Toinder, who heads a Dutch police team, was speaking in the government-held city of Kharkiv, where the refrigerated train containing the bodies had been sent. As far as we know at this moment, we are talking about 200, and that is for sure 200 victims, which means that there are probably remains left in the area where uh, this disaster took place. The European Union foreign policy chief Catherine Ashton has said the EU will introduce sanctions on more Russian individuals and organisations to punish Moscow for its support of separatists in eastern Ukraine. In particular, to put in place very quickly a list of entities and people, including from Russia, under the new enhanced criteria, and to expand the restrictive measures to target individuals or companies who actively benefit from support of the Russian decision-makers responsible for the annexation of Crimea or the destabilisation of eastern Ukraine. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning to you. This is Money for Nothing. The time is 8.33, and we'll take a look at news. Return to financial issues in about 10 minutes. The Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, said attitudes towards Russia have fundamentally changed since the downing of flight MH17. Britain has led calls for tougher sanctions, saying the world has changed as well. Here's the new UK Foreign Secretary, Phil Hammond. 
Okay, we had hoped to uh, to have that audio for you. Uh, and, um, yeah, that is uh, the European Union there. That's uh, the clip there from uh, the, the U.K. Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, which we were hoping for, just uh, advising my technician. That's 9692. And uh, so let's go now to uh, comments here from the new U.K. Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond. What was enough last week is no longer enough this week. So we have to go further, and we've agreed concrete proposals to draw up lists of additional people subject to sanctions, for example, and to do so within the next couple of days, as well as looking at broader-ranging sanctions, including arms embargoes, access to capital markets, financial services, and high-tech goods, including for the energy sector. Five days after the downing of the Malaysian airliner, international investigators have been given full access to the wreckage. But European observers say large parts of the fuselage have been cut into, possibly to remove bodies, and now look different from even two days ago. They also say that they can see some human remains at the site. But most of the remains of those who died have now reached government-controlled territory in Ukraine from where they've been sent on to the Netherlands. The BBC's Richard Galpin reports from Kharkiv. After a long, slow train journey from the crash site in rebel-controlled territory, the bodies are now here in the peaceful city of Kharkiv. The process of preparing them for the flight to Holland is already underway. Teams of forensics experts from the countries affected, including Britain, will gradually place them in wooden coffins. A spokeswoman for the Dutch team told the BBC they expected the first flight to leave for Holland tomorrow, where the bodies will be identified. Today, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte warned identification could take a long time. As soon as a victim is identified, the family will immediately be informed. Nobody else. That can sometimes happen quickly, but I must add, it can sometimes take weeks or even months. Back at the crash site in the Donetsk region, monitors from the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, who've been making daily visits to the site, say they have evidence the wreckage has been tampered with. Michael Botsirkiu is spokesman for the OSCE monitors. They've been cut into... And one main cone section has been almost split in half. And this is in addition to an observation we made two days ago that the cockpit section and the the first class section, which is about two kilometers from here, we observed uniformed uh, men cutting into that with a diesel power saw. It's not yet known if any vital evidence was removed, but it will add to suspicions of a cover-up by the pro-Russian rebels who've been accused by the United States of firing a surface-to-air missile which brought down the Malaysian plane. BBC's Richard Galpin reporting. Here in Hong Kong, the Chief Secretary Kerry Lam will meet with pan-democratic lawmakers later today. They'll talk about political reform and the possibility of arranging a meeting between the Democrats and central government officials. The chief executive yesterday called for more dialogue between the two sides. He said time was running out because the mainland's top legislative body will soon meet to discuss reform here. RTHK's Damon Pang reports. The Standing Committee of the National People's Congress will meet in late August to set out Hong Kong's reform path. 
The chief executive, C.Y. Lang, noted that this gives lawmakers only five weeks to make their views known to Beijing officials. Speaking ahead of the weekly executive council meeting, Mr. Lang called on legislators to make good use of this time to communicate with the central government. The CE said his administration will do whatever it can to facilitate such talks, but said it is up to the respective parties to make efforts to communicate. The Chief Secretary, Carrie Lam, is scheduled to meet with pan-democratic legislators to discuss political reform and the possibility of setting up a meeting between them and Beijing officials. The Vice Chairman of the Basic Law Committee, L.C. Lung, urged pan-democratic lawmakers not to set any preconditions for talks, saying that will only undermine the effectiveness of any such dialogue. The Chairwoman of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, said her party hopes to tell Beijing officials about the wish of Hong Kong people to democratically elect their next leader without any pre-screening mechanism. Frederick Fung from the Association for Democracy and People's Livelihood, meanwhile, said he will bring up the need to democratize how legislative councillors are elected in 2016. Damon Pang reporting. Our Mike Weeks asked Labour Party lawmaker Sid Ho what the pan-democratic lawmakers expect to get out of this afternoon's meeting with the chief secretary. Not much, because uh, actually we, we met uh, Mrs. Carrie Lam uh, months ago already on the the proposal on our proposal for the, the constitutional reform. And uh, last week in the House committee meeting, she told the council that she would be the bridge between the central government and the pan-democrat. So the, I hope that she has a duty to tell the central government the urge for democracy uh, because we want to eliminate corruptive practices and put a hold to wealth disparity through a democratic electoral system. And uh, since the Electoral College has been an unholy alliance of economic and political privilege, I hope the nomination committee would not be a replica of such. Okay. Um, the chief executive has called for more dialogue between pan-democrats and central government officials. If you're saying you don't hold out much hope of talks with uh, Carrie Lam, would you hold out uh, hopes of making any progress in talks uh, with you know, uh, people like the head of the National People's Congress, Zhang Dejiang? Well, I, I hope the, the leader from the, the central government uh, could understand that a hand-picked chief executive by the electoral college that is not much different from the three candidates handpicked by the nomination committee, uh, which is like a replica of the same mechanism. And if Beijing wants to control the election through the formation of the nomination committee, the constitutional reform will be a doomed failure. But you would go and enter into talks with them to try and persuade them of that? Well, I hope it will be a question and answer process. That, uh, and I, I hope to bring to the attention of the central government that the uh, corruptive practices and uh, wealth disparity in Hong Kong is actually a result of the political system. And uh, I also hope that, that this could be the common ground between the central government and the uh, Hong Kong people on the, how to stop uh, these two problems and uh, bring progress to Hong Kong. 
That's it, Ho. The time now is 19 minutes before 9 o'clock. Still ahead, media mogul Jimmy Lai says that a large batch of pictures and documents have been leaked to the local media. He thinks they may have been stolen from his company's computer by hackers. And in Indonesia, the presidential election has been won by the former governor of Jakarta, Joko Widodo. Both of those stories uh, coming up shortly here on Money for Nothing. Well, let's get a check of markets here. The Nikkei is up 19 points in early trading at 15,362. Advances right across the board uh, overnight. Uh, Wall Street was fairly strong and earnings have been good. And the Asian markets are following on up uh, in Australia. The ASX 200 gains 31 points or has gained 31 points so far at 55.65. And in Seoul, the Kospi is up to up about a quarter of 1%. I'd like to say good morning again to Robert Greaves uh, from Hamilton Advisors Limited, the chairman and chief executive officer. He joins us in our Admiralty Studios. Uh, Robert, good morning. Good morning. We're talking about Alibaba, the upcoming IPO. Looks like it'll be delayed a little bit. Perhaps it'll, it will be priced a little bit lower. But it does raise an interesting question, what this IPO means for branding in China. We've just been hearing this morning earlier in the program from Paul Schulte about what a behemoth Alibaba has become. Yes, and I think Paul and uh, Alberto in the previous half hour really set me up beautifully for this segment. Um, Alibaba, of course, will be probably the biggest IPO ever on the New York Stock Exchange uh, when it when it does begin trading, probably uh, in September sometime. And it's going to drive interest in Chinese Internet companies around the world, uh, interest in them from around the world. And I want to make a couple of points, Brian. I mean, uh, we've now... We've now seen that Chinese brands can be very big and well-known, but going forward, they're going to have to compete on the basis of service and performance, both inside and outside of China. So let's take Alibaba as an example. I mean, if they try to get market share in North America, will North Americans like the Alibaba service experience? Will they have to adopt? Um, There are already other issues. The Princelings are investing heavily. The New York Times has run an investigative piece on the financing, and I think the SEC is looking into some of that uh, before the company goes public. Um, so can an investor expect uh, his shares in Alibaba to rise or fall strictly on the basis of market performance, or will they be subject to insider trading? But apart from these questions about Alibaba, it's, it's, it's shed a lot of light on Chinese brands, and this is going to be very important, because if you look at what's happening today in China – Market-driven brands will be crucial in rebalancing China's economy away from export-led to consumer-led growth. Well, obviously, you know, uh, quite a number of brands have made big advancement. Lenovo's one. Uh, Huawei is pretty well-known. Uh, Hire right. is getting pretty well-known. So if you look in the tech space, I mean, clearly Alibaba and Tencent are the best-known companies. They're talked about all the time on CNBC and Bloomberg and the domestic um, audiences, you know, in, in the state. So they're pretty well known. But Alibaba, I've heard, uh, both Tmall and Taobao are not that easy to use. They're a little bit complex. Uh, do you think that they will be embraced by Americans? Well, this is the problem. And, uh, you know, my colleagues may have a comment on this. But, but the issue is, is the experience that's right for Chinese consumers going to be good for North American consumers or consumers in Europe? And right now, some of my friends are telling me it's not that great an experience. So the company would have to adapt if it wanted to be truly global. But one of the points that uh, Paul was making is that price, you know, has really been the main determinant. Uh, you know, these companies with these incredible um, um, 
warehouses of servers uh, and algorithms written to find the lowest price anywhere. Is that really what uh, will drive the business still, I, like uh, like Amazon? I, well, I think customer experience and service are also going to be very important. So you think uh, we're moving away from price point as the main uh, as the main attractive feature and more now into the whole customer experience? I think so. And I think for Alibaba to be successful going forward, if it's going to move offshore from China, it's going to have to provide a better experience. What might Alibaba learn from a company like Tencent that listed a long time ago um, or others like Facebook? Uh, I think they're going to have to go local into the markets they want to expand in. I think they're going to have to uh, bring in more market experience through people that are familiar with the markets, such as North America. Okay, so hang on for just a second, Robert, because uh, we've, we're also trying to institutionalize on the program a, uh, a new feature, a tech update feature with uh, Angelina Draper, and she joins me now in the studio. Safely tucked in now with a seatbelt attached and uh, up to the mic she is. Angelina, good morning. Good morning. What do you have for us in your tech update this morning? It's a very, very busy morning. So Apple reported its second straight quarter of double-digit percentage growth for iPhone sales. Chief Executive Tim Cook credited the strong sales to high demand from BRIC countries where he said sales were unbelievable. Although revenue was up single digits or nearly flat in the Americas, Europe, Japan and the rest of Asia Pacific, collectively iPhone sales in Brazil Russia, India, and China rose 55%. Samsung has dominated the large-screen mobile phone market, but is about to get competition from Chinese smartphone maker Xiaomi and Apple. Xiaomi will release a new model featuring a 5-inch screen later this week, and Apple has reportedly asked suppliers to manufacture as many as 80 million units of two large-screen iPhones with 4.7-inch and 5.5-inch screens. Xiaomi is also pushing international sales by entering markets including India, Brazil, and Russia. Amazon rolled out a digital wallet for smartphones called Amazon Wallet. The app allows people to store loyalty cards or gift cards to use at checkout and comes just days before the release of its Fire smartphone. Reports say the move is an indication of the company's ambition to turn its device into mobile cash registers. The app will be pre-installed on Fire smartphones and can be downloaded in Google Play stores. No news yet on whether it will be available for iOS devices. Rumors that Apple will unveil its iWatch this fall took off as the company was granted a patent for a smartwatch. The device has features available on other smartphones, uh, on other smartwatches such as touchscreen, GPS, receiver and vibration-based alerts. However, it can work separately from the smartphone, making it quite unique. Reports show that users will be able to store music and video on the actual smartwatch and listen through headphones directly plugged into the watch. And finally, Electronic Arts reported solid profit growth in its first fiscal quarter. EA's net income rose 51% year-on-year, while revenue jumped 28%. The video game maker has benefited from consumers buying new video games for the latest generation of consoles. The rise of mobile gaming was seen as a concern, as some analysts expected a drop in home console gaming. But that doesn't seem to have been the case for Electronic Arts since the start of the year. Shares in electronic arts have increased in value by more than 65 An awesome quarter. An awesome quarter it had. And some people have been saying, why doesn't Microsoft, you know, they're looking for a new business platform. Why doesn't Microsoft move on electronic arts? 
Well, I think we're all waiting to see what all of the new things that Microsoft, this, this incredible um, new era for Microsoft that's coming in and see what's going to happen. Okay, Angelina, thanks very much. Tech update here on Money for Nothing. The time is now 11 minutes before 9 o'clock. And Robert Greaves is still with us, the CEO of Hamilton Advisors. Uh, Robert, um, we've been talking a little bit about uh, what the Alibaba IPO will do for branding. Companies like Xiaomi and Kingsoft and there's so many lower level uh, Chinese companies that have really expanding businesses, but they're not really known yet on the world stage. Is that coming soon? Um, it's going to take a while. It's going to be on a case-by-case basis, Brian. And, you know, there are, uh, away from the, uh, from the tech and Internet sector, there are a lot of other companies coming up. I mean, don't forget BYD. Don't forget yeah. uh, some of the uh, PICC, New China Life. Um, there are real estate companies. Any, any one of these could break out and go global. Um, and there's a whole raft of these. WPP has done an excellent study of the top 50 brands. And uh, they're all terrific. These companies are all vying uh, for attention from consumers in China. They all want to go out. That's the directive, go international. But I just want to point out to you one thing, that none of these companies seem to have yet in China, with the exception perhaps of Alibaba, but that remains to be seen a little bit. In the category of what is called meaningful difference, which WPP defines as the attribute that stimulates customer loyalty and value growth, only Western firms seem to have this. Only truly international firms seem to have this. And right now, the Chinese don't have it. So they can be big. They can compete on price. But as I said, the customer experience service and this attribute of meaningful difference they're going to have to develop if they want to be truly well, that must be changing. Uh, Paul, you wanted to make a point. Yeah, real quick, I would say that, that Alibaba, if you look at its portfolio, is extremely clever because it is its social network, it's dating, it's buying, it's uh, research, it is f- exchange of photos, it's uh, knowledge, it's education. And also now financial services. At, ab- yes, sir. Absolutely. It's going to become very big in financial services. The point I want to make is, the, the, think of Disney. Disney is probably one of the best brands in the world. Disney is an intergenerational brand. And I think Alibaba is becoming an intergenerational brand for young middle age and old mature people for everything and i think that's a brilliant uh, move if 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 they can handle all the acquisitions that they've made in the last uh, three years one of the stories robert in the past was that chinese brands didn't really need to go global because they had such a huge domestic market uh, that that occupied them uh, very nicely uh, but now it seems like with the chinese economy slowing a bit this has actually pushed them uh, out beyond boundaries but it seems like what you're saying is that's fine that's well and good but if they don't get the software side of it the culture side of it they won't make it that's true um that's what i'm saying and, and on the back of what paul was just saying i want to make a point that there's some great bits to uh, alibaba that are terrific um and and you know you look at tmall you look at taobao there's some Alipay. Uh, there's some there's some really interesting bits that if they get it right could be just blockbusters uh, out in out in the international scene. And think of Momo. Momo is a dating site that is that has a hundred and forty five million people on Momo. <laughs> Right, this is the largest dating the, site in the world. The first uh, Bush presidency in his <laughs> Yeah, which was, of course, short for momentum. Now, I have a question, though. I, I, I really wonder. I've done a great deal of work on Alibaba, and I, I got to say, I wonder if they're going to just put the international expansion on the back burner until they can really deepen their China experience. Um, 
I wonder how much international, you know, oomph that they really do have at the moment. Um, I'm, I, I think it's a question mark in their minds about how much how much time they're going to wait in terms of you know expanding in China and deepening their their experience in China before they become more international. Robert, um, well, there's there's been a counter argument that perhaps they should move out of China altogether and put their headquarters someplace else and start uh, uh, doing their business more in dollars and the euro than in renminbi. Okay, I got to ask you, Paul, also for uh, disclosure purposes, since you are so keen on Alibaba, are you uh, being paid by Alibaba at the moment? And secondly, do you own um, do you own in any way um, Alibaba? Uh, stock. I am not being paid by Alibaba. I do not own any Alibaba stock. Private I don't. Stock. I, I've never met Jack Ma. I don't know Joseph Tsai. Okay. <laughs> I don't know any people involved with the okay. transaction. All right, Paul. Th- thanks very much. Uh, we've got to move on to uh, the next segment. I just thought that um, was important to uh, to ask of you because um, you know you're quite keen on. It's a Alibaba. fascinating company. Paul Schulte, uh, CEO of, of Schulte Research, and many thanks to Robert Greaves from Hamilton Advisors, the chief executive officer there. Money for nothing. Six minutes now before nine o'clock. Well, it was kind of a seasonally slow start to 2014 in terms of transaction volumes in commercial real estate. So we wanted to find out where we're heading next. We're joined by David Green Morgan uh, from Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, David, good morning. Good morning to you. You're the um, research director there. Um, what caused the real estate market um, uh, to slow down a bit, and, and is it bouncing back now? Well, I think over the first half, the, the main reason for the slowdown in commercial transactional volumes around the region was with the uncertainty around the Chinese economy, I would say. Uh, obviously, China has grown to be one of the most important markets in the region for transactional activity, and Given the cooling measures that we'd seen uh, across many of the cities in in China, it started to have a slightly negative effect on the commercial uh, market as well. And really, the 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 commercial activity was lacking a little bit of direction over the first half of the year. But I would say that that's starting to become a little bit more positive now as some of the the macro data from China uh, is more stable and, and showing signs of improvement. And also, I think the market is is coming to terms with the cooling measures on the residential side. And so I think over the second half, we'll certainly see a, a pickup in China. Around the rest of the region, uh, Japan uh, has been the real standout performer over the last 12 months. The, the turnaround in business sentiment there has been quite extraordinary, and we think it's going to have a, a great second half of the year and the other main market in the region is is Australia which again has has had a fairly solid first half of the year in China the developers have been discounting a lot now and it looks like they're they've restoked a demand there that's mainly on the residential side but um, you say that that is also having a, a positive effect on commercial yeah I think we'll we'll see as the uncertainty in the residential market uh, clears a little bit. I think we will definitely see a positive effect on the commercial side as well. Obviously, the the residential market in in China is one of the biggest growth drivers there, and and the sentiment uh, within residential has a big effect on on how the commercial market operates as well. And so, I'd say we're starting to see a bit more clarity around commercial 
uh, office and retail space in, in particular. Many of them, of course, are very closely linked and in some cases form part of bigger mixed-use developments with residential schemes as well. So uh, the, the, the two are very closely linked, even though uh, the drivers of, of both residential and commercial can be slightly different. But we're certainly seeing, uh, I would say, a lot more positivity, which we think will will feed through into better transactional activity in the second half. And how much do you worry about debt levels from developers in China? Uh, I think it's uh, it's a concern given the, the the financial crisis that we've seen all around the world was was triggered obviously by by too much debt being taken on by an awful lot of uh, individuals and groups and governments. So when debt levels rise, it's obviously a concern that developers are going to struggle to fund existing projects as well as any new projects. But I think given the the price drops and some of the discounting we've seen. The market seems to be reaching a, a level where, where supply and demand seems to be coming into a better equilibrium. So I don't think it's, it's a massive concern for us at the moment. Certainly the, the developer clients that we speak to uh, are fairly comfortable with, with where they are and they, and they have enough uh, financing to be able to push, push forward on their projects. And just out of curiosity, how much do you look at some of the smaller markets? Uh, just uh, thinking about Indonesia, given the presidential election has been settled now, and it's more the reformer, Joko Widodo. Uh, is Jakarta um, and possible infrastructure plans there, will that make a, a big difference for commercial real estate? Yeah, absolutely. I think all around the world, the, the, the cities and countries that we see performing well are those that invest heavily in infrastructure. And Certainly, now that the uh, the political uncertainty in Indonesia has has, has cleared, uh, we think that it, it, it's a market that's going to continue to see very strong demand. Uh, the biggest problem for commercial investors in Indonesia is actually it's quite a small market, and it's difficult to get exposure uh, to the Indonesian economy because there actually aren't that many buildings that you can okay. you can buy. There there are a few new buildings being built in Jakarta at the moment, but it's it's a much longer term term game and uh, it's interesting that you know the, the pickup in sentiment we saw in japan was a, was a as a result of the a change in uh, in prime minister there we're seeing a similar trend in india and now I, I suspect we'll see a similar trend in indonesia as well okay david thanks very much sorry to uh, hold you so late and squeeze you a little bit thanks for joining us that's okay My david, david green you. morgan there from jones lang lasalle well that's our program for today we'll just leave you with the weather as we go out uh, the weather more or less what we've been having sunny periods and a chance of showers the maximum temperature 33 <laughs>